This evening we continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we have been working in chapter 8, and I was not able to finish the entire passage that I read the last time, and so I will pick it up again this evening at verse 9 and read through verse 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17, and I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Again, dear friends, you have just heard, not the opinion of a first-century Jewish scholar, but the veritable Word of God, that Word that brings to us life itself. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, we look to You as our helper in understanding the depths and the riches of those things that You have set forth in Your Word. As we wrestle tonight with questions about our own assurance of salvation and our own standing before You as Your adopted children. We pray that the Spirit of grace will stoop to minister to our frailty and to our weaknesses, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, I read a stunning novel that was then interested to see it being made into a major motion picture by Hollywood 
And in this film, the star was Dustin Hoffman. The name of the book and consequently the movie was The Marathon Man. And it involved great intrigue of a person who was trying to escape the clutches of a secret Nazi war criminal who was living in this country. And so the hero would ask on every occasion when he would meet with his friends in the underground this question, is it safe? That was the theme of the movie over and over and over again. The inquiry came, is it safe? And when we come to the eighth chapter of Romans, the unifying theme of this entire section of the epistle addresses that question to those who are wondering if they are safe from the wrath of God. Can we be assured that indeed as the eighth chapter begins, that now for us there is no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. In our last time together, we looked at the distinction that the apostle makes between the carnal life of the fallen flesh and the spiritual life that marks the life of the Christian. And we came to that place in verse 8 where we read, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who remain unconverted, those who are still defined by the corrupt nature that is referred to by this word sarks or flesh, they're in such a state that nothing they can do can please God. Something that may surprise you or startle you is that even the prayers of the unbeliever are displeasing to God because those prayers do not come from the heart. They come from fear of danger or some other uh, peril that they face in this world. And the Scripture warns us that the worship of the ungodly becomes a stench in the nostril of God because while we remain in the flesh, there's nothing we can do that will please Him. But, the apostle says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the last time we were together, I labored the point that what marks the life of a true believer is not that he has the fullness of the Spirit or the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, but that He is indwelt by the Holy Ghost. And every single person who is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit is safe. Every person who is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit is a new creature in Christ, is regenerate, and enjoys all of the fruits that flow from our justification, which Paul has set forth in this epistle. And again, he speaks of the contrast. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
Again, your safety in the kingdom of God is not determined by your church membership or whatever good deeds that you have managed to perform in this world. Rather, your safety consists of being in Christ and Christ in you. And if you have all of the labors of your hands to offer before God, if you've been a member of a church all of your life, had perfect attendance in Sunday school, but the Spirit of Christ does not dwell in you, you do not belong to Him. We've looked on many occasions at what I think is the most terrifying warning ever found in the New Testament from the lips of Jesus, which comes to us as the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. When He reaches that conclusion by saying, many will come to Me, and the last dang saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in Your name? Didn't we do that in Your name? And Jesus said, I will say to those people, depart from Me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Please leave. I don't know who you are. You are not mine. I do not dwell in you. You do not dwell in me. That's the scariest thing that anybody could ever hear from the lips of Jesus. And so Paul reminds us that if we don't have the Spirit of Christ, then we do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, manifestly, there's a, a little difficulty here in this text, a, a, a conundrum of interpretation. And it's a close call that the translators are dealing with because we have seen repeatedly in this section of the epistle the contrast that Paul sets before between the Spirit and the flesh. And I mentioned to you that whenever we see that conflict between spirit and flesh, the flesh refers to the fallen, corrupt nature that we inherit from Adam, and the spirit refers to the new man, the person who has been reborn by the Holy Spirit. But so often in Scripture, when that word spirit occurs, it is modified by the adjective holy, and whenever the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit, there is no doubt as to what is in view in the text. Obviously, it refers to the third person of the Trinity. But when the word spirit, or pneuma, occurs by itself without that adjective holy, we are left to ask this question, of what spirit is the Bible speaking? Is it speaking of the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, which Paul has just talked about here in this lesson, having the Spirit of Christ in us? Or is it referring simply to the human spirit? Because the Bible teaches that we as human beings also have a human spirit or soul, as it is sometimes called. Now, that's the problem here. If Christ is in you, 
The body is dead because of sin. And here the distinction is between body and spirit and what the results are of Christ being in you. And I don't know what your translation looks like, but the one I'm reading from reads as this, if Christ is in you, the body, that is your body, is dead because of sin. But the spirit, notice that word spirit here in the text, is life because of righteousness. Now, in my Bible, the word spirit is capitalized. How many of you have that capitalized in your Bible? Okay, most of you. That means the translator, when they came to this portion of the text, became convinced that the spirit that is mentioned here must be the Holy Spirit. And they might be right, but the only way you can tell between the reference to the Holy Spirit, if the word holy is not there, and the human spirit is by the context. And this is one of those few times where I personally disagree with the translators here. I think they missed the boat because the contrast here is between the body and the spirit. And we're talking about the human body, which is being contrasted here with the human spirit. And so I'm going to take that approach in seeking to understand the text. If Christ is in you, what's the result of that? Well, the body, your body is still dead because of sin. You're still going to die. But the spirit, your human spirit, which is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is life because of righteousness the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, the difference between this interpretation does not amount to much, really, because in the final analysis it still means the same thing, that if our human spirit is going to go to a different destiny from what our bodies are going to go, it is only because the divine spirit is dwelling within us. But then Paul goes on to say, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We're safe in the first instance because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, All through this text, this question of safety is connected to the question of the assurance of salvation. I've talked about this with you before, but it's such a burning question in the life of the Christian. Am I really in a state of grace? How can I know for sure that I am saved and am not one of those who We'll hear those uh, dreadful words from the lips of Jesus on the last day, please leave, depart from me. You confess me with your lips, but I don't know who you are. How can we know that we are in a state of salvation? And I've talked about the, the struggle that Christians go through all the time that I've gone through in my own life. And if you recall, I've mentioned to you that there are four kinds of people in the world. 
with respect to the assurance of salvation. I once heard a man say, there are actually three kinds of people in the world, uh, those who can count and those who can't. But with respect to this question of assurance, there are four different possibilities. And let me go over that again so that you'll catch it for sure. There are those people who are not saved. They are not in a state of grace. They are unbelievers, unregenerate, unsaved, and they know that they are not saved. No difficulty with that category. Then there are those who are saved in a state of redemption, who have the full assurance of their state. They are saved, and they know that they are saved. So again, first group, those who aren't saved, they know that they're not saved. Second group, those who are saved and know that they are saved. The third group are those who are saved. They're in a state of salvation, but they're not sure of their state. Their souls are still restless. They haven't reached assurance of their salvation. So again, the first three are simple. Not saved, know they're not saved. Saved, know that they are saved. Saved, but don't know yet that they are saved. Now, it's very easy for us to understand these three categories. It's the fourth one that muddies the water. And that is this group, those people who are not saved, but who know that they are saved. They have the assurance of salvation, which salvation they most assuredly do not possess, because their assurance is a false assurance. I've gone over this with you before, but let me just quickly Uh, recapitulate. There are two basic reasons why people can have a false sense of assurance of salvation. The most common reason for that is because they have a false understanding of what is necessary for salvation. If people are told that everybody goes to heaven when they die, The reasoning of the unbeliever can be very simple. If everybody is saved, I am a buddy, therefore I am saved. The premise that is false is the first premise, namely that everybody who dies goes to heaven. Another false kind of assurance is this, where people say, say, I believe that people who live a good life will most assuredly go to heaven when they die. I have tried to live a good life, ergo, I can be sure that I'm going to heaven. Another false premise, because it is a false understanding of what is required for salvation. Now, the second category of false assurance has to do with the evaluation of ourselves. We may have a correct understanding of what is required to go to heaven. We understand that to to be saved requires 
personal trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation as the apostle has been laboring through this epistle. But we may deceive ourselves with respect to the profession of faith that we think that we have. In other words, we may think that we profess true faith when in fact we do not. We may think that we believe in justification by faith alone because we understand the doctrine intellectually and we can pass a test on it in theology class, but in our hearts and in our souls we are not trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for our salvation, so we deceive ourselves concerning our state of grace. And this is why chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Romans are so important, because Paul is showing us the picture of what a true believer who is truly redeemed looks like. He's not one whose life is controlled by the flesh. He's a person who is indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that has to make a difference in how you live. Now, therein comes the consternation, as I've said before. I say that on September the 13th, 1957, 11 o'clock at night, I became a Christian. That's when I was overwhelmed by the gospel and had that profound experience of forgiveness of my sins that turned my life upside down. But one of the most deeply difficult things, as Paul expresses in chapter 7, was that after my conversion, though my life was turned upside down, there was still sin there. And now, lo, these many years later, there are still sins that I battle with. And sometimes I ask myself, how can I have the Spirit of Christ in my soul and still struggle this way after all these years? But that is the plaintive cry of every Christian. And we know that by being converted and in a state of grace, that does not guarantee the end of temptation or the end of falling into momentary lapses of disobedience. We've been through all of that. So here in this following section of the letter, Paul is giving us pastoral counsel. He's giving us information from divine revelation that should calm our spirits, that should increase our confidence of the state of grace to which we have been called. So we need to watch very carefully as we listen to this. Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we're debtors. We're debtors not to the flesh. We don't owe the old man anything. We're not under any obligation to fulfill the lusts of our fallen nature. But we are debtors to live, again, to the Spirit, but let me read it as he says it. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, that is, 
as we mentioned before, the overarching guiding principle of your life remains the old man and the the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, so far, that's not very good news. If the only way I can be sure that I am saved is if I put to death all of the acts of the sins of the flesh in my life, then I would have precious little reason to be sure of my salvation. But fortunately for us, the apostle doesn't stop there. Now listen to this. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You want to know if you're in a state of grace? You want to know if you're a child of God? Well, one of the answers that we receive here in Scripture is, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. So the first test that we have as to whether we are children of God is the test of whether we are led by the Spirit. Now, how I wish that were easy to explain. Because if there's any biblical concept that's been thoroughly muddled in our day, it is this concept of what it means to be led by the Spirit. You know, one of the things that's dangerous that in Christian communities, in our fellowships, we devise and begin to use certain Christian jargon. And that jargon becomes the norm that defines our theology rather than a close examination of the Word of God, because the way in which our jargon functions in many instances often has little relationship to how the same words are used in Scripture. Now, with the enormous impact of the charismatic movement in the last century, that concept that has uh, received uh, a large acceptance in the jargon and currency of Christian language is this idea of being led by the Spirit. What do you think of when somebody says, well, so-and-so is led by the Spirit, or I am led by the Spirit? or the Spirit of God led me to do this or to do that. The usual connotation of that idea of being led by the Spirit is to be guided or to be directed by the Holy Ghost to go here, to go there, or to go over there, to take this job or not to take this job, to make this decision or not to make this decision. In other words, we use the language of being led by the Spirit of God for concrete, specific guidance from God and His providence in which He opens doors for us to walk through or closes them. And there's nothing wrong with the idea that God, in fact, leads His people where He wants them to go and into those uh, experiences where He wants them to experience. But that's not the primary meaning of this in the Bible. 
Again, the question that I hear more often than any other question from Christians, the theological burden that they come to me is they say, R.C., how can I know the will of God for my life? How would you answer that question? I said, well, we have to distinguish in the Bible among various ideas of the will of God. On the one hand, there is that sovereign, efficacious will of God, which we sometimes refer to as the hidden will of God, that which God ultimately has in view with His plan for your life and your destiny. And let me tell you about people come to me and say, how can I know that will of my life? I said, you can't. Quit worrying about it because it's none of your business. If it were your business, it wouldn't be in the hidden will of God. But God has not been pleased to reveal all these things. I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now, let alone a week from now. In fact, I'm told that I'm not to say, well, next week I'll be in Alaska. I have to put that in brackets. I have to say, next week, God willing, I'll be in Alaska. But I don't know tonight for sure where I'm going to be a day from now, let alone a week from now. But when the Bible speaks of the will of God for our lives, what's the biblical reference, which is so different from Christian jargon? Let me quote it to you. This is the will of God for you, even your sanctification. If we would spend less time worrying about whether we should marry Jane or Mabel or Ellen, and more time trying to apply the biblical revelation of what God wants from His people, we will be much happier and much more fruitful as Christians. The Bible is not magic. It's not a crystal ball where we ask the Spirit to guide us into the hidden places. No, where the Spirit guides His people is into righteousness, the path of righteousness, into holiness. That's what this is about. And so when the Apostle Paul says, as many as are led by the Spirit are the children of God or the sons of God, that means those people whose lives are being directed towards the righteousness of God. If your life is being directed by the Spirit of God who dwells within you, then that is a sure and certain sign that you are a child of God. Because that's what the indwelling Spirit does. He inclines your heart. He gives you a hunger and thirst for obedience to Christ. He gives you an affection by which you respond to Jesus' statement, if you love me, keep my commandments. So I ask, ask myself, do I have any disposition or inclination in my heart to follow the Spirit's leading to obedience to Jesus? It's really not hard for me to answer that question, folks. 
If I frame it a different way and say, is my heart fully, totally, and absolutely inclined and disposed towards following the Spirit into holiness, the only answer I can give to that is no. That's not true of me. But if I state it another way, is there any sense in which my human spirit is directed to the things of Christ? Any at all that guarantees me that I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God because the flesh never is inclined, cannot be inclined whatsoever to the things of God. There's where our theology is so important in terms of getting the assurance. If I know what the state of a person is who is not born of the Spirit, and I know what a state of a person is who is born of the Spirit, and I can then discern the difference in the pattern, then I can know that I have been born of God, the Holy Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, again, sonship, biblically, is defined over and over and over again in terms of whose lead you follow. Remember when Jesus talked about the Spirit of God giving liberty to those who were in bondage and how offended the Pharisees were at that teaching, and they said, we are in bondage to no man. How did they know they were in bondage to no one? We are the children of Abraham. I know that I'm in the kingdom, Jesus, because I can show you my birth certificate, and I can go back through my genealogy, trace it all the way back biologically to Abraham. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm in bondage to no man. I don't need the Holy Spirit to rescue me from bondage. Jesus didn't accept their claim of being children of Abraham. They are saying, you are the children of him whom you obey. You are children of Satan. You see how Jesus said that? It's not a question of biology. It's the question of obedience. You are a child of the one whom you obey. And if you are obeying the lusts of the flesh, if you are obeying the inclinations of Satan, then you're a child of the devil, not of Abraham and not of God. And that's why Jesus is saying as many who are led whose lives are directed by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God because they're following and obeying the one who is leading them in the way of God. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. See the contrast here between two kinds of spirits. One is the spirit of bondage. That is the spirit that is produced by the flesh. 
That is the spirit of the unregenerate, unconverted person. They remain in prison. They are incarcerated to their old nature. They are slaves to the sinful impulses of their own recalcitrant hearts. But if you have the Spirit within you, you no longer have the spirit of bondage. You no longer are shaking and quaking in servile fear before the Lord God. But now you have the spirit of adoption. It's interesting. The concept of adoption is not found generally among Jewish uh, uh, theologians of antiquity, but it's a Roman idea. And now Paul, speaking to the Romans, uses this metaphor to describe their relationship to God. And we don't think that that's really a big deal in this day and age because we've been told as a result of 19th century uh, comparative religion theology that all roads go to heaven and we are all the children of God, which is as far away from the biblical view as you can get. In the Bible, God has one child, the monogenes, the only begotten, even Jesus Christ. All the rest of His children are not naturally born children, but they are adopted children. The only way you get into the family of God is not by biological birth. The only way you enter into the family of God is if God adopts you. And the only way you're adopted into the family of God is if you are united by the Holy Spirit to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so, remember, Paul has been spelling out for us the benefits and the consequences of our justification. That being justified, we are at peace with God. We have access into His presence. We've looked at all of these things. But one of the great consequences of justification is all who are justified are immediately adopted into the family of God. And with Jesus now have the unspeakable privilege of addressing God as Father. It is by the Holy Ghost shed abroad in our hearts that we now have the authority to cry, Abba, Father. Now, you all know that's in this text. And you've all heard a dozen sermons that tell you that the word Abba is the common familial term of endearment that could be translated Daddy. There's truth in that, but it's a dangerous truth. The truth of the phrase Abba that we are invited to use with respect to God is that in our adoption, we enter into the inner circle of the family of God, that there is no closer relationship, and that we can use this term, this familiar term, this personal term of intimacy with God, Abba, Father, in which we are saying, Daddy. That's true. And we experience the use of that term in your own life, in your own house. When my 
daughter really wants something badly from me. She doesn't address me as dad. It's daddy. (laughs) And I know what's coming next, that she wants something because she uses that more intimate term of endearment with me. So again, I don't want to disparage the idea that we have this privilege of using this close term of affection with our Heavenly Father. But the other side of it, the downside of it, is that the term daddy can be used in a childish way, in a frivolous way. And the fact that we can address God now as Father and say Abba to Him does not give us the right to enter into His presence presumptuously or arrogantly. Uh, On other occasions, I've mentioned the research of a German scholar towards the end of the 20th century, Jehoiakim Jeremias, who studied the use of the term Father for God in Jewish history. And in his research, he came to this conclusion that though there were scores and scores of approved forms of address that Jewish people were encouraged to use in their prayers to God, the idea of directing a prayer to God as Father immediately and directly was unknown and in a sense abhorrent to them. Jeremiah said that the first occurrence of a Jewish prayer addressing God directly as Father was in the 10th century A.D. in Italy. And even then manifests a Christian influence. That one of the most radical things that we find in Jesus is the claim that He makes over and over again during His earthly ministry of the special intimacy that He had with the Father. I do nothing on my own authority, but only what the Father tells me to do. And all that the Father has given me to do, that is what I do. All of those whom the Father has given to me come to me. And again and again and again, Jesus refers to God as His Father. That enraged the Pharisees. They took that to mean a claim of equality with God, saying this man calls God Father as if He were equal with God. And every recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament except one, Jesus addresses God directly as Father. That's so common to us that we read over it and miss its significance and miss how radical this was in Jesus' day for any Jewish person to pray and address God, Father. But Jesus did it every time He prayed. And then when His disciples asked Him to teach them how to pray, what does He say? When you pray, pray like this, our Father. 
that unique privilege that I alone on all of world history have to address the God of heaven and earth as my Father, I'm giving it to you. So that when you pray, you can call God Father too, because He is now our Father, because I'm adopting you into this family. It's an unbelievable privilege that we should never take for granted, that we have the authority to address God as our Father. That was not something taken for granted by Jesus whatsoever. And yet, if you would go to your homes and go to a prayer meeting and listen to people pray one at a time, if ten people pray in your presence, nine of them at least will begin their prayers by saying, Father, or our Heavenly Father, or our dear Father. I mean, that is so integral to the life of Christian prayer that we wouldn't think of addressing God really without coming to Him expressing this term, Father. But it is a privilege given only to those who are adopted and who have received that spirit of adoption by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. Finally, in this section, the deepest and highest level of assurance of salvation we ever can achieve in this world is this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Here again you see that word spirit referring on the one hand to the Holy Spirit, and then in the second use of it, directing it to our spirit. So that there is a spiritual conversation here. There is a spiritual communication that comes from the Holy Spirit to the human spirit. And what does that communication uh, indicate? The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In the final analysis, dear friends, my assurance of salvation is not a logical deduction from my theology, which helps. It's certainly not based on a careful uh, analysis of my behavior, which hurts. But my final assurance comes to us by the testimony of God the Holy Spirit Himself. Who bears witness with my spirit and to my spirit that I am a child of God? Now, this is wonderful, but also dangerous. Paul's not falling into some kind of Gnostic mysticism here where we get the special revelation, a special pipeline of our own where the Holy Ghost talks to us and doesn't talk to anybody else. It gives us private little revelations. He's talking about how the Spirit of the Lord confirms with our human spirit a truth. But I have to ask you, how does He do that? It's not that when you're driving your car down the highway, the Holy Ghost comes and whispers into your ear, oh, relax, R.C., you're one of mine. I've adopted you. No. 
Beloved, if we learn anything tonight, we need to understand that when the Spirit communicates to God's people, He communicates to them by the Word, with the Word, through the Word, and never, ever, ever, ever against the Word. There are millions of people out there claiming to be led by the Spirit into sin, who claim divine guidance into disobedience. Well, I don't have to do that because I prayed and God gave me peace in my disobedience. Run for your life from those kind of people. You want to know if you are hearing the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you when it comes and where it comes in and through the Word. That's so important that we understand that. So if you're lacking in assurance and you want your heart to be at peace, you go to the Word. And the Spirit will confirm His truth to you in and through the Word. That's how He works. That's how He does it. If you want to be led by the Spirit of God, Immerse yourself into the Spirit-inspired Word because we are called to test the spirits to make sure that the spirits that are leading us, that the Spirit who's leading us is the Holy Spirit, and the only test that we can apply is the test of the Word itself. And so the Spirit Himself He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Because all of God's children participate in His estate. They are all His promised beneficiaries. If we're children, we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, then we may also be glorified together. This last portion of this verse represents a transition to what Paul brings us in our next time, and so I'll stop here, and we'll pick it up again, God willing, the next time at verse 17. Let's pray. Father, can confirm with our hearts and souls our spirit by Your Spirit, that we are Your children, that we are safe, that we are His, that we belong to Christ, body and soul, and that we look forward to the inheritance that has been saved up for us in heaven. For we long, O God, to hear those words, Come, my beloved, inherit the kingdom that my Father has prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Thank you for adopting us and giving us the Spirit by which we can call you Abba, Father. Amen.